good morning. Wasn't that fun? Wasn't that awesome? So great. Now, a couple of things that I'm going to do as we get ready. First of all, uh, I'm going to ask my wife to go up and get my glasses for me. And secondly, I'm going to ask whoever took the communion table, you took my Bible. And so I'm going to need that back too. Wow, today is such an awesome day. We get to celebrate so much. Roger, you're a saint. Thank you, sir. We get to celebrate together so many things. I I think it's appropriate. We talk about Jesus and communion. We talk about Jesus and what he's done for us in our baptism celebration. Let's talk about what Jesus has done for our country, huh? How about that this morning? We're celebrating our independence. Did you know? Go ahead and clap for our country. Somebody started a clap. Go ahead. Amen. We're going to do point number one on your outline note card. We're going to do this this morning. We're going to celebrate America. Celebrate America. We have reason to celebrate. Did you know that other than the nation of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, thank you, there has never been a country, a nation, that has experienced the amount of blessing and the length of time that we have been blessed as this country has. Not in the history of mankind has there ever been a nation, except Israel, that has been so blessed and for so long by God. We have enjoyed prosperity and blessing. We have enjoyed protection. We have enjoyed a rush of the economy of God spreading the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries that we've been a country all throughout the world and in large part due to what God has done right here for our own nation. I want you to invite you to turn to Psalm 80. There's two primary passages we're going to look at from the scriptures today to show us what God has done when we celebrate this America, celebrating our independence this morning. Psalm chapter 80. Let's begin reading in verse 7. I want to take a small portion and show you what it looks like when God plants a nation. God plants a nation. Verse 7 of Psalm 80. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. This is a reference in Psalm 80 to when God took Israel from Egypt from persecution, from difficulty, and delivered them to be a nation on their own. It's, in a sense, Israel's Independence Day that Psalm 80 is referring to. God planted his own vineyard with his own people. He brought them out of Egypt, as it says in verse 8. He cast out the other nations. He's, He's plowed up a ground and prepared these people for his own nation. And then he planted them like a, like a vineyardist plants his vines in the ground. That's how nation of Israel was planted into Palestine, into the land, the holy land of Israel. And since that time, we don't know as clearly as we do now of any other nation that was exclusively, again, just like that, brought out of persecution, out of difficulty, and given a land of their own, God cleared it out, plowed it up, and again, planted a vineyard. It's not the same as Israel, but it has the same concept. His own people, for his own special purposes, God planted the United States of America. Did you know that the people who escaped tyranny, the people who fled from Europe, 
to establish this nation. The very first pilgrims that came, came for one primary reason. They wanted to develop a free place to worship God and practice their faith as Christians. God led them. God convicted them. God protected them. And listen to me carefully. God planted them. America was planted by God. He did it. We know that's true. Do you know? You got to understand, folks. And, and the reason I've asked children, boys and girls, uh, elementary age, and teenagers to join us this morning is because they don't hear this in school anymore. And I want them to hear it. I want them to hear the truth and learn how it really happened right here this morning. Did you know that back as early as the 1500s, in the country of England, where our first settlers came from, in the country of England, Christianity, whether it was the Catholic Church or the Church of England, or in just a few years after that, the Protestants through the Reformation, whatever category you want to put them in at that time, they were persecuted and ridiculed and mistreated by governing officials, their government, the king of England. And you got to understand, during the 15 to 1600s, England was like a roller coaster for Christians. One king passed on to the next queen, who passed on to the next queen, who passed on to the next king. Radical and different views regarding what church is. And at first it was the Catholic church. And then there's a guy named Henry VIII. And King Henry VIII decided that he wanted to divorce his wife for really no good reason. And he went to the Catholic Church and he said, I need special permission to divorce her since I'm the king. And the Catholic Church said, no, absolutely not. It's not in the eyes of God. It's not okay. You're the king. You're the leader. You're not supposed to do that. No. So here's how the Church of England started. The king then said, fine. As king, I'm going to be in charge of the church from now on, not you. That's the day in the history of England that the state, the government, took over the church. You understand that? That's in 1500s. And after that, those in England seeking to worship and understand God's ways and practice who God is and follow the scriptures and the Bible as their guide, they, they suffered at the hands of one king after another that sometimes acknowledged them, sometimes didn't, and sometimes killed them. Anybody heard of Bloody Mary? Just two generations later, Bloody Mary crucified and killed Christians. We think King James is so awesome because King James Bible, it sounds like he should be in a good, good king if he ordered the translation of a Bible, but you need to understand in 1603 when King James took over, those were some of the worst days for Christians. He slaughtered many of them and prevented them from establishing their faith and fought hard against those who would seek to reform the church and make it better and more biblical. See, those were the days where the government took over and said, you know what, this church thing, these church people, it doesn't always work out for my benefit as the king, as the authority, as the government, as the ruler. And so they sought one after another to put themselves over the church to dictate and demand what the church is ordered to do and what the church is not ordered to do in his own eyes or her own eyes. 
that made the church corrupt. There were all kinds of things that Christians had to go through that were not right and, and suffered if they wanted to do it right. And so you come to these first, these, these Puritans, these pilgrims, the separatists, that left England, first went to Holland, and then came to this land that we now call the United States of America. Understanding the context from which they left England was Puritans wanted to purify the church. They wanted the church to be exactly the way God wants it to be, to be exactly what the scriptures teach. They didn't want some king, queen, governor, magistrate, or anybody who maybe didn't even know God ruling over them, telling them what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. That's the group of people. That's the mindset and the mentality of those who left Europe and came to settle a new country in this land. Do you see it? They were under persecution. They wanted to purify. They wanted to build a new church. Some wanted to reform their own church in England, but couldn't. And some realized that that was an impossible dream and had to make a land for, their, for themselves. Let me read to you some very important words from documents in our own nation's establishment. Those first ones that came over in the Mayflower and and you might have heard stories of that, kids, young people. The Mayflower came over, and as they did, they were, in a sense, the, setting up their first little form of government, guiding principles and document that said, here's how we're going to behave as a new people in a new land. And before even stepping onto the land, they wrote what's called the Mayflower Compact. November 11th, 1620, they wrote, here's who we're going to be in this great nation that we're going to make. It begins this way. In the name of God, amen. In the name of God, amen. I wonder what it says about a new nation, a country that will last hundreds of years afterwards when the initial settlers and the first one to begin to outline documentation that forms the identity and the purpose of who they are. I wonder what it says about that people and the progression of that nation when they begin the very first words with that document saying, to the glory of God. Amen, which means settled truth. This is it. There can be no question. In the name of God, amen. And then in the text of that Mayflower Compact, we don't have time to read the entire thing, they outlined their purpose, and I'm reading from it. It says, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. They established their purpose and wrote it down, those initial settlers, and said, here's why we're here. We've come to this nation to start a new settlement, a new government, a new people, a new nation. For the glory of God. Now, now these are not my words, okay? These are Puritan words. And the advancement of the Christian faith. Not the freedom of the Christian faith. Not just to escape persecution of the Christian faith, but I want you to notice, it was in their mind also that as Christians, their mission was to advance the Christian faith, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that grow up in that nation, that it would be a nation that serves to glorify God. You see, it was planted by God. God used men and women that wanted to glorify him, to build a nation that would be used for his purposes, to advance the Christian faith. Now listen to me. I'm going to tell you something. I know we have some guests and visitors. If you come from another faith, that's not to say that there isn't freedom in our nation for other faiths. There absolutely is, and they intended it to be that way. 
No doubt that no faith should be persecuted or outlawed in this new great free nation. That's part of the foundation of the gospel message itself. Men must be free in order to choose Jesus Christ as Savior. So they built the nation free without condemnation or persecution to worship who you wanted to and practice what faith you wanted to. But the purpose was for the advancement of the Christian faith. Make no mistake. It was established right there in the Mayflower Compact. Now just about 156 years later, there was another document that was written. It's called the Declaration of Independence. And it was written, some argue, on or near July 4th, 1776. That's what we're celebrating tomorrow on Independence Day. It was when these later, one generation later, new settlers, these pilgrims that came to build this nation, took the final step of severing themselves from control and sovereign identification with England and become their own distinct nation. And the framers of the Declaration of Independence, just like the framers of the Constitution, used the Mayflower Compact as their initial guide. That that was one of the resources and the templates they used. It says something like this, in part at least, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. We have the freedom we have, the rights that we have, because we've been endowed by God, the Creator, to have them. It's built right into our declaration. That's the introduction. and the closing words, it says something like this. We do this with a firm reliance upon the protection of the divine providence. Now, we don't use King James English much anymore, but they did. They used these fancy words. Let me explain to you in that day what was meant by a firm reliance upon the protection of divine providence. It meant we will trust in God alone to protect us and guide us. That's what it meant. That's what divine providence meant. It was a formal way of acknowledging God's providence, his control. In other words, they're saying we're here because God put us here, because God has a plan. His providence established that we would be here to glorify him, to spread the Christian faith, and that we've been protected by God because it's his providence, his plan, and his purposes. Therefore, we can rely on his protection. Did you know that that's what they said in the Declaration of Independence? Did you know that that's what we're celebrating this weekend, today? We mutually pledge to one another our lives, fortunes, and sacred honors. And make no mistake, friends, make no mistake, many of these signers died or had sons and daughters killed defending their faith, even in the early days of our nation. They did pledge their reliance with their own lives, many of them. This, you guys, you got to understand, I don't know what they're teaching in public schools anymore, but I guarantee you they're not teaching this. We don't have the right as a nation in our development, in our progression, and maturity. We don't have the right at some point to go back and begin to change what history actually says to take our country in a unique and different direction. Now, if you want to do that, just say so. Just say, hey, look, I don't like the framers of the Constitution. I don't like why they came here. I think we should be a different nation and form your own political party, and you have every right to do that. 
but it's high time in America today, and it begins with this generation and these kids' generation, it's high time that we at least state what the truth is. If you're going to do that, you're going to defy the intent and the purposes of the original settlers that came to glorify God in this nation. Amen? That's what it is. Now, you have the freedom to oppose that if you want to. Anybody does in our country. But you don't have the freedom to revise what truth actually happened. We've got to tell the truth. And I think, I think maybe, maybe if the next generation, if kids, if teenagers and students, if you understood, guys, that that's why those Puritans came here, they wanted the good church to glorify God and to progress the Christian faith, then it might be a little bit easier for you to see why this should be a nation that's governed by the laws of God. We don't have the right to change. The Mayflower Compact said they came for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. It was planted by God. But now I want to show you this. It was also planted for God. What am I talking about? Not Israel. Of course Israel was planted for God. I'm talking about the United States of America being planted by God and for God. Well, how do you know that? Well, because of how God moved in the hearts of the people that came here and why they said they came here. And when God plants a nation, the scriptures show us that he plants it for his purposes, not for their own. Hello. Did you hear that? The scriptures show us that when God chooses to plant a nation, he does it for his purposes and not their own. That's what we learn. In fact, turn over in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 5. Again, Isaiah is speaking about the very same thing. In both cases, Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5, these writers are going back and recognizing that God planted a nation, Israel. And when God plants a nation, he does it for his own purposes. And that's what they're showing us here. Look at chapter 5, beginning in the first verse. Listen carefully. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Again, we're using this vineyard analogy. My well-beloved has a vineyard. On a very fruitful hill, he dug it up and cleared its stones. He planted it with the choicest wine, vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, do you see the transition there? God planted a vineyard. And in this vineyard, he wanted to produce grapes. And then it says, now... O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to this vineyard that I have not already done in it? Why then, when I expect it to bring forth good grapes, does it bring forth wild grapes? And now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Time out. I'll make sure you guys get this. Especially our young people, our students. You see that the Bible makes this analogy. When God plants a nation, it's like planting a vineyard. Right? A vineyard are those vines that grow grapes. And he says, he cleared out the land, and he made it just right, and he came in and he planted his own vines, planted his own people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. And when he planted them, he brought them out of Egypt where they couldn't worship freely, and brought them to a place where they could be God's people 
And he said, here's why I brought you. Are you guys with me? He said, here's why I brought you to bear good grapes, to bear fruit. That is to say, when God plants a nation, he has every right for that nation to bring forth good fruit for his purposes. Do you see it? In fact, he's saying here, just like Psalm 80, hey, there's not good fruit going on here. There are some things that don't glorify me here that I don't want. This is wild grapes. This is not grapes that I want. What are you doing? You see it? He's saying, don't I have the right to expect good fruit since I planted this nation? Absolutely he did. God planted this nation. It's by God and it's for God. Let me read you a few more details in our, in our history. Listen carefully to this. In 1776, the year of Declaration of Independence, 11 of the 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian to be eligible to run for political office. 11 of the 13. In 1777, the Continental Congress voted to spend $300,000 to purchase Bibles for distribution in the nation. Hey, I wonder what Congress today would think if somebody proposed using tax dollars to propagate the Christian faith. Well, $300,000 back then was a whole lot of tax dollars, let me just tell you that. And they didn't get this money on their own. It was tax dollars. And they bought holy Bibles to educate people with. The Gettysburg Address states, This nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. Under who? Under God. 94% of the writings of the founding fathers of the United States contain quotations from the Holy Bible, from the scriptures, 94% of them. The state constitutions of all 50 states mention God. The famous Liberty Bell has a part of Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10 inscribed on it. It says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. Do you understand that the concept, the very idea of liberty when they built the nation, the United States of America, came from the Bible? That's how they understood what liberty was. That was the definition of liberty. That was their reference point for liberty as it came from the scriptures. Liberty doesn't mean the freedom to do whatever you want. Liberty means freedom from sin and oppression from those who would propagate sin. And they knew that. Part of the scriptures, Proverb 14.34, is described above the Los Angeles City Hall door. I'd like to go down and see that. It says, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. An image of Moses carrying the tablets, the Ten Commandments of God's law, faces the Speaker of the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., at least for now. The entering president takes his courtroom oath of office with his right hand on the Holy Bible, and he concludes his vow, so help me God. You, you guys know, right? That's not an accident. That didn't happen because one day one of, the, one of the presidents decided, well, my faith is different from anybody else's, so I'm going to use a Bible to swear on, and I'm going to say, so help me God at the end. It's actually the only way presidents took oath into office to govern the people of the United States of America, placing allegiance 
submission to the authority of what the Bible says, God's word, and pledging to that. The Supreme Court itself begins each session with the phrase, God save the United States and this honorable court. The first vice president and the second president, John Adams, wrote this in 1798. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. You see what I'm saying? This is the guy that followed George Washington in office. Okay? Second one. This is what he said. Our Constitution, the document that governs how we progress as a nation and operate as a people, that document, it's only good for a moral and religious people. It doesn't do any good for those who don't profess God. We'll see why in a minute. President Thomas Jefferson, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Thomas Jefferson saw some trouble in America, and he trembled because he knew that the trouble, the problem with the trouble, was that it offended God and God's ways. And he was fearful. When is God going to have enough? Our sixth president, John Quincy Adams, said this, No book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. Uh, By the way, John Quincy Adams also made this statement. Listen carefully. In 1821, he said, The highest glory of the American Revolution was it connected in one the soluble bond, the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. Did you hear that? He said, you want to know what the value of the American Revolution was? All that blood spilt, all that sacrifice. You know what good came out of that? He said, here's what it did. In one indissoluble bond, can never be separated or dissolved. The principles of civil government and the principles of Christianity brought together as one. Then he said, in the day of declaration, they were bound by the laws of God by which they all acknowledge the rules of their conduct. He was speaking of those that fought in the revolution. The declaration. James Madison, the architect primarily of the Constitution, said this, We stake the whole future of American civilization, not on the power of government. We have staked the future on the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves and sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments. Church, that can bring us some hope this morning. That can bring us some clarity right there. You know what James Madison was saying right there? He's saying, listen, we don't put all of our hope in the government and the government's ability to govern the affairs that we have. We put the hope that things will go well, that we will be successful, that we'll be okay. We put that hope 
and the hope and promise of every single individual person underneath that government and their ability to obey the commandments of God. Reading on. You guys got to hear this stuff. It's been taken out of books. Okay? At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, Benjamin Franklin said this, God governs in the affairs of all men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, it is probable that an entire empire can rise without his aid. Abraham Lincoln. Anybody know who Abraham Lincoln is? Are we here to celebrate him today too? Absolutely we are. Listen to this quote. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. This is 1863 already. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our own hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. He was right. Every time in the history of this country, just like every time in the history of God's other planted nation, Israel, every time the people forgot that it was God that put them there, they forgot that the reason that they were blessed and successful and protected was because they were obeying God's ways. Every time they forget that and begin to take over the reins of their own future and determine their own values and separate themselves from under that direct authority, listen to me, direct authority of God's laws, every time that has happened, the nation has begun to stray and judgment ensued. You see, Abraham Lincoln knew that. And he said, we have to turn back. We have to repent. We can't violate God's laws like this as a nation. And if you want to be part of this nation and have the freedom to worship another God, you have that freedom. But you need to understand this. The only reason we're blessed and protected is because we're a nation of the laws of the holy God of Israel and the church. And we better get back to that. We better repent, he says, or judgment will come soon. And judgment did come, didn't it? This nation has faced some hard days of suffering. Now, unless we think that's all ancient history, and all we're going to do this morning, church, is we're going to talk about our roots. These are our roots. We're a vineyard that God planted, and here's the roots of our vineyard. And we're going to celebrate that today. That's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to be grateful to God, and we're going to praise God, and we're going to remind ourselves how good it is that God has done this on our behalf. Next Sunday, we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about what happens to the future of America, what happens to the nation that has gone as far as we have of intentionally removing itself 
from the governing affairs of God's laws. And what is the church supposed to do about it? That's part two. That's next week. But this morning, all we're doing is looking at our roots and celebrating that together. Well, in modern history, our government leaders also knew our roots and knew of our Christian godly heritage. Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president, also governor of New Jersey, said this, America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness, which are derived from the revelations of the Holy Scripture, 1911. Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, said this about our founding fathers. They were intent upon establishing a Christian commonwealth in accordance with the principle of self-government. They were an inspired body of men. It has been said that God sifted the nations that he might send choice grain into the wilderness. Who can fail to see in the hand of destiny? Who can doubt that it has been guided by divine providence? 1923. Franklin Roosevelt prayed this prayer on a national radio. D-Day, June 6, 1944. As the troops stormed the beaches of Normandy, France. Almighty God, with thy blessing we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogance. Lead us to the saving of our country. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. See, it has always been when the nation decides to go to war, when the nation decides to take radical steps of defending itself, when the nation decides to lay down a stake and make a claim that this cannot be violated, this can never happen, this is unacceptable, and we will fight to the death to prevent it. Those are the times when they viewed what was happening in the light of what God's law says, what the scriptures say. We don't go to war to defend our own finances. We don't go to war and take radical steps of of legislation to, to make ourselves more happy. We do so to maintain the freedom and the momentum to glorify God as his people. Do you hear me? Even recently, presidents recognized that. Harry Truman, our 33rd president. Now, you... Regardless of their government and party affiliation, there's differences of opinions. But here's what Harry Truman said, like others. He was known to be a committed believer. He said, if men and nations would but live by the precepts of the ancient prophets and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's see. 33rd President Harry Truman was quoting from a, a book He was saying, the precepts of the ancient prophets and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Where would I find those? The the prophets' words, the ancient prophets' words, the the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. Is that the Koran? No, it's not the Koran. Is that the Enlightenment book of the new spiritual age? No, but it's not in that either. Oh, I know. It's found in the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. He said, "If, if... Men and nations would live by the precepts of the ancient prophets and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Problems which now seem so difficult would soon disappear. Now, now notice what he said. He did not say, if government would get on the stick, if we'd have better government. That's not what he said. He said, if men and nations 
would live by the precepts found in God's word. It begins with the people. Gerald Ford, now we're up to the 38th president in 1955. Some of you were born in 1955. Quoted a speech by Dwight Eisenhower. Here's what he said. Without God, there could be no American form of government. I wish we'd just stop right there. Without God, there could be no American form of government because that really is the truth. And we've just, you know what? We've just gotten to the point where we're afraid to say so sometimes because it's a differing opinion. Because the elite media and those who have taken hold of the agenda of our country because they have ridiculed us and persecuted us and told us that if we say such things, it's racist and unloving and the elitists calling us elite when we say such things. Well, listen, the problem is we have truth on our side when we say it. It's true. Without God, there could be no form of American government. The American government and the way it's set up now, if it weren't for God having men in place that feared him and were seeking to advance the Christian faith and God's agenda, if it wasn't for them, they wouldn't have written the form of government that we have. All these men that I'm quoting and so many more. Oh, he goes on. Without God, there could be no American form of government nor an American way of life. Recognition of the supreme being is first and the most basic expression of Americanism. Thus, the founding fathers of America saw it, and thus, with God's help, it will continue to be. And then all the way up to President Ronald Reagan. I don't have any quotes past Reagan. I'm sure there are some. But listen, this is a famous quote. Here's what he thought. If we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. What can we do, he said. If we are ever to forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. Why does he have the clarity to make such a statement? Because it's true that when God plants a nation, he has every reasonable right to expect that that nation bear fruit that glorifies him. He doesn't expect that from nations he hasn't planted. And as far as I know, other than Israel, the United States of America has been the only other nation where God grabbed a group of people and said, you start a new nation for me right here. And that's why, make no mistake, that's why the United States of America has enjoyed so much protection and success over these years. Every other empire, every other nation self-destructs. But as long as America kept under the glory of God and governing themselves according to his ways, he protected them. He protected them. A divinely planted, write this down, a divinely planted nation that is not bearing godly fruit can expect or is in danger of losing God's protection and blessing. 
A divinely planted nation that does not bear fruit for God is in danger of losing God's blessing and protection. It's true in the scriptures. Listen to what it says, and I'm going to close. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is in Isaiah 5 where we're reading, Judge, please, between me and my vineyard, what more could my, have I done to my vineyard that I have not already done? Why then, when I expect it to bring forth good grapes, does it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, and it shall be pruned, dug. taking a moment, I want to thank God for the brave men and women that made their way over here and started this great nation. Aren't you grateful they love God enough to do it? They, some of them died. They made huge sacrifice. Aren't you grateful to God and praise God this morning that when they came, they were such men of character and godly substance that when they formulated government and, and the affairs that would, even though it maintained liberty and freedom, it also maintained a general, if not specific, observance of the laws of God that came straight from the scriptures. That was in their mind. That was their intent. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for all the years of protection that we've had from God. Nobody has ever invaded America. Nobody's ever taken us over. Every war, every battle we've come out of and recovered from. Sure, we have our scars. And there have been times where we've been awfully thin. But we've been a nation that God has protected and blessed year after year after year after year after year. I want to celebrate that. I want to thank God for that. I want to enjoy being part of that nation. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud that one day we declared ourselves independent as a nation from those that would persecute and hold back the Christian faith. And in the same statement also claim ourselves absolutely dependent upon God and his righteous laws. Independent from tyranny and government, dependent upon God and his laws. That's the roots. That's the foundation. That's what we're here to celebrate July 4th tomorrow and the Declaration of Independence for America. That's what, that's what it's about, church. Don't let the world or those who don't like it tell you anything different. They cannot like it. It's okay. Enjoying the same blessing and the same freedom and the same protection from God, they can say they don't like it. But I'm not changing the truth. I'm not missing the opportunity to say, thank you, God. I love this great nation, and I will die defending it. But I will also maintain every step of the way to do the best that I can as an American citizen to honor and glorify God and progress the Christian faith. How about you? How about you? Would you pray with me?
Let's go before the Lord in prayer and seek God together as we thank him. Father, thank you so much for this great nation. We praise you for planting it. We thank you for blessing it and protecting it. Thank you that we have a country where we're free to not only express our faith this morning, but also have been governed by its laws that come from your scriptures. Give us your blessing. As you're praying this morning, let me invite you in your own heart as you're thanking God and praising him for our nation. Have you ever thanked God personally for dying on the cross for you? Because that's what the Christian faith is all about. It's not possible if it weren't for Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the forgiveness of the sins of mankind. And if you've never personally received that like these young people did at camp this week, if you've never said, yes, Lord, I, I, I accept your death for my forgiveness of sins, let me invite you to do that right now. Settle once and for all that you're forgiven of all your sins because of Jesus' blood and nothing will ever change that. Just simply cry out with me to God in your own heart. It says something like this, God, I know that I'm a sinner and, and I'm guilty of my sin. I could never get to you on my own. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross and spill his blood for my sins as the payment that I needed for forgiveness. Now I choose by faith to believe and confess you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior who died for me. That I would go to heaven because your blood covers me. If you've prayed that prayer at some time, you're not only an American, you're a Christian American. And this country is yours. God made you part of it. I want to invite you, if you're grateful for that, come to the altar this morning. Maybe just a few moments. The altar is a place where we're going to come and be grateful for that. Lord, I'm part of this country. I'm part of the heritage of being a Christian, an American citizen. You want to thank God? Come. Anybody want to praise God? I want to praise you, God, for the way that you have used our nation to take the gospel, the good news, to so many different parts of the world. And you've sent missionaries from our country, and you've given us the reason to be an example as a country. So many dark places have seen light because of what you've done in this nation that you planted and in our forefathers, and in our lives. I want to praise you for that. Does anybody want to do that this morning? If you'd like to come to the altar and praise God, this is the time. It's your place. Is there anybody that's concerned? Lord, I don't know where our nation's going. I don't know what's happening. There seems to be a lot of talk that doesn't reflect our heritage. And I don't know what to do about that, but I just want to come to you this morning and say, I belong to you first. And I will live my life as a Christian in obedience to your ways no matter what my government does or says. Anybody willing to take that step? Boys and girls, students, children, ask your parents if it's okay to come to the altar. 
say, I want to live my life in obedience to God and his commands, no matter what happens in this country. Make a claim. Make a statement before God. Remember this day. Yeah. Come forward and say, it's your nation, Lord, and I'm yours. Others, you want to pray for repentance of our nation. God, help us to remember what you've done. Help us to remember your view on sin. God, I pray we would repent of our sin in this nation. We would turn from it and turn to you. We're all sinners. As your church, we turn to you and rely on your forgiveness and your grace to help us, forgive us. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. And so he expected it to bring forth good grapes. Lord, continue to do that in our nation. Bring forth good fruit that glorifies you. We praise you. We thank you. We celebrate what you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Before we go this morning, let me invite you to take out that communication card that I referred to earlier. Would everybody take one of these out? It says, welcome. It's a chat card right on the front. Put your name on the front of that card if you would. Everybody go ahead and do that. This is the part where you get to participate. Okay? On the back of that card, we give you an opportunity to respond, each and every one of us. Hopefully you've seen testimony of God this morning. You've experienced worship the Lord this morning. Perhaps you've heard from God through his word, through the Holy Spirit. Hey, would you write on the back of that card a response? God, here's what I would do to respond to what I've heard you tell me this morning. Here's what I want to thank you for. Here's what I want to pray for. And as the gentlemen are going to help with the offering come forward, these guys are going to pass the offering plate around. First and foremost, let's make sure we are putting an offering into the plate that is from our heart. This card is your offering. You say, Lord, here's what I plan to do. Here's what I say. Here's how I respond to you. And give that as an offering this morning. Also, I want to invite you to be very uh, generous and obedient in financial giving. Put that in the offering plate as well. God has so richly blessed this nation, has he not? We, we, we have so much. And if you would take a moment this morning and as an act of worship, give back to God a portion of that blessing financially in the form of an offering. I feel like that would be honoring to the Lord as he leads you to do. Only in obedience between you and God as we do that. Pastor Joe, would you lead us in prayer for our offering? Father, we just thank you for the freedom that we have to worship you. The freedom we have now to honor you by giving our tithes and offerings. We give you our heart. We give you our praise. In Jesus' name.
Amen.